Hey everyone, this is Derek Stone. And this is Conrad Geringer. And you're listening to the Working Triathlete Podcast. Today, Conrad is going to interview me, I suppose, or we're going to discuss my recent performance at the Nashville Rock and Roll Marathon. It was an exciting weekend. We had dozens of athletes competing in the marathon and the half marathon. A lot of people had awesome performances. It was an ideal day. The weather was, I think, 36 degrees when we started, which sounds cold, but once you start running, that's that's pretty comfortable. And the energy of the city was pretty awesome as well. So congrats to everyone that finished in race. It was a it was a beautiful morning. The course is not, you know, it's not that brutal, but it's it's definitely challenging. I would put it in the category of hilly, at least for the half marathon. Uh, I know the half marathon, I looked at everybody's data and uh, total elevation gain is 600 feet. What makes it challenging is all of that elevation gain basically is in the first, um, you know, six or seven miles. So you start the race by running downhill and then the first half, it's just a, basically a, just a, a kind of a gentle incline, but that makes it somewhat hard because it's really easy to go out too hard and, and have a bad race. I think a lot of people are interested in, in your race specifically because you, I think you had an incredible day. You, it was an inspiring performance. It was pretty awesome to see you up there, you know, leading the race. And so for context, you know, th this is the, the rock and roll marathon and half marathon in Nashville. It's a big race. So, you know, it's one of the bigger races in the country. I mean, it's not as big as certain others, but it's a competitive race. This isn't like a pedunk local local race. And, and, and the course was actually a little bit long. Everybody who did the half marathon who we worked with, I mean, it, it was about 0.2 miles long. The marathon was, what did you have it at? I had it at 26.5. So just about a quarter mile long. So, so it was definitely longer than a bona fide 26.2. And it was a, a challenging course. And, and you ran 228 flat, like on the dot. Yeah. When I looked at my watch, I thought I was at 227.59, but obviously <laughs> crossing the time mat, that's what they had me at. So if I were paying attention, I probably could have squeaked out an additional second, the last quarter mile. However, I also was looking at my watch and knowing that I already crossed 26.2. So I didn't know how far the finish line was away because the finish was different than I have seen in years past. Typically the finish line is closer to the stadium, but you had to run basically a quarter mile longer to finish at the far side of, of the, uh, the parking lot of the same. Yep. So, so the, the finish line is Nissan stadium. It's where the Titans play. And, you know, it's a big outdoor stadium, obviously. And, and it seemed like without a doubt, the course this year was longer than years. And it's not like they modified the course in any way to really to, to make up for it. To, to my knowledge, at least definitely didn't modify the half marathon course. I don't believe. And it shows because everybody ran longer than 13.1 in theory. I, I mean, obviously you have to claim your PR as uh well, you can claim your PR as whatever the heck you want. But uh, on another course that was actually measured correctly, you, know, you probably ran 226, right? Yeah, I think um, Training Peaks and Strava would have me at 226.42. Got it. Obviously, a very good time. What was your average pace per, per mile? So according to you know my, my GPS data, um, I averaged you know 536 pace across the board. So I, I kind of, I'll back up real quick though, and I'll kind of walk through the build up to this a little bit, and then we can jump into the race. Yeah. But so every, everyone knows I'm a new father and our baby is uh baby Bo Woodstone. He is uh, six weeks old today, actually. 
I knew going into the race, it'd be difficult to swim and bike. So I just cut that out completely. And I knew this race was coming up and I really wanted to do a marathon. So this was my first official marathon. And I basically started the build right after the 70.3 Worlds in St. George. I uh, took you know a week down and then just really just started running as much as I could. The majority of the weeks, I averaged between you know 75 and 85 miles a week. The week that Bo was born, you know, I was in the hospital for a couple of nights, so I ran like 65 miles that week. But overall, you know, I can't really complain with the, the preparation. I, I absolutely would have ran more if I had the opportunity, but I had to be really conscious of you know helping out my wife and things like that as well. I think we need to really kind of drive home the fact that you know your training into this marathon was not traditional marathon training. So you you focused on triathlon obviously throughout the whole year base. I, I mean, frankly, the last probably five years. Yep. <laughs> you you focused exclusively on triathlon more so than than running. I know you've been doing triathlon longer than that, but what would you say your average miles per week over the last two years has been? And then the last year and then maybe so we know that the last two months and literally only two months because St. George was mid-September, you shifted, did a marathon build from mid-September to you know mid-November. Trailing two years, average miles per week, and then maybe trailing year and trailing six months. I, I know it's going to be right around that 30 miles a week. You know, some weeks are probably higher right around 35. But when you are training for a triathlon, like that's most, that's going to be pretty sufficient anyway. There's definitely some weeks that might get a little bit bigger if I do a big long run. But when you're training for a triathlon, you can definitely gain fitness on the bike as well. And obviously the time that you have allotted to train, you can't get it all in. But yeah, generally I would say the last couple of years, it's going to be right around 30 miles a week with some bigger weeks, just north of 35 miles a week. You know, you mentioned the crossover benefit cycling to running and, you know, certainly there is some, obviously the best way to get better at a discipline is to do the discipline. You replace the bike volume with run volume. You definitely would have run faster, but you know, we can't negate the benefit of cycling and swimming for just building general cardiorespiratory fitness. I mean, the results, they just speak for themselves. And that's one great thing about triathlon training. Mm -hmm. um, 30 miles a week on average, 30, 35, you do St. George, the 70.3 world champs, and then you uh, have an eight week marathon build. How did your running feel over that eight week period? Because you know, I always tell athletes when you're in the throes of a cycling block or you're doing a lot of intensity on the bike, your runs are going to feel, you're, you're going to feel heavier. You're going to feel kind of flat. You're, you're just going to feel like you're plodding along. And then we start as a race approaches, we'll do some speed work. And once you taper that deep fatigue kind of goes away and people, it seems miraculous, but they start running a lot faster. Did you notice that at all when you you know, over the last eight weeks, did your running just feel a lot better week over week? It really did. And when you take away the the cycling load and replace it with run load, I, I just automatically felt much faster. But there's also an element too where my key sessions were fewer as well. So I wasn't, I, w I didn't have the stress of the bike going into a, a run workout and vice versa. I generally would have three key sessions a week and the rest was pretty easy. I mean, really, really easy. Um, even most of my long runs are pretty easy as well. So I would generally do like a tempo run once a week. And then I would do some intervals midweek and then the long run. And then as I approached the race, I, I got pretty specific with the long run and I would do, yep. I'd throw in some efforts. We're at target pace, essentially. 
What were two key workouts that you did that were an indication that you were going to do really well at the marathon or that gave you an idea of what you could run? There's so many that, that kind of boosted confidence, but my first 20 mile run put a 5k in the middle of it. And I ran 16, 11 near the end of that 20 mile run. And that was an indicator where I knew I was pretty fit. One workout that didn't really give me confidence, but it was a good workout. I did another 20 mile run or maybe it was 18, but I did two by five miles. And I, I averaged about 539 for the two five mile segments, give or take, you know, one, one effort was a little, little slower. One was a little faster, but that workout was actually pretty challenging. And I knew at that point I had a lot of fatigue and I was ready to unload after that. And that was my last big workout before I started to taper. You certainly did marathon specific work in in the build obviously you know how to train for a marathon and and obviously you're a coach so you know i mean you're an expert and and clearly everything you did over that eight week period directly <laughs> impacted your ability to throw down on race day and you executed really really well you basically doubled your run volume and i know you did that carefully and one should not double their run volume over a month. However, you have a deep kind of run background. You are very careful on listening to your body and you keep your easy runs very easy, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. So what was your, what were your thoughts there? Yeah, that's a great point. I would never recommend anyone building, you know, more than like 10% a week. And if you have a really, really deep run background in your body and your, your skeleton, you know, your, your, your muscles and your skeleton system is, is used to the, the pounding, you might be able to, to cheat that a little bit, but once once I started training specifically for the marathon, I hit my first week at 50 miles. And then from there, I think I hit a high 50 mile week and then started adding about five to seven miles a week after that to build up. There was still a progression, but it was a little bit more aggressive than you would generally see. So I know we, we talk about this often, but literally every time we mention it, a couple of athletes kind of get the memo. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know what I'm going to ask? Oh yeah. So you just ran, you know, Right around 535 pace for a marathon. What were you running your your easy supporting sessions in, which was actually the majority of your running miles? Around 730 or slower. Uh, there was definitely even days where I would average over eight minute pace. For a lot of the beginning of the runs would, were definitely over eight minute pace. And yeah, I, I really want to hammer that home too. And a lot of people think, you know, they might be running a race around seven minute pace or a little bit faster. And a lot of the runs take place around that 7:30 mark, and that's just too fast. You're not going to recover from that. So you look at the the percentage, and I'm running over two minutes slower for my easy runs and some forty mm -hmm. sessions, and that's what you need to do. It's all about getting your your heart to sort of that max stroke volume, and and that happens pretty darn low at a pretty easy intensity. And you know your body builds running economy at pretty pretty slow pace, you know, relative to your threshold and and all that. So there, there's just no reason to pound your body. Ideally, volume, getting more run volume is going to be better than, you know, running a fewer miles faster if we're talking about running in that gray zone, that zone mm -hmm. 3 realm, but even upper zone 2, um not not a huge need to even spend a lot of time there. Um, yep. you know, low zone 2 I mean, you could be at 60% of max heart rate and you're basically getting the, the same benefit that you're going to be getting basically all the way up through probably the middle of zone three. And then, you know, there, there's some other benefits to, to running faster than that, or, or even certain race specific work and prep for a 70.3 or a, an Ironman or something. So you definitely had a polarized approach, which is good. So you had eight weeks to build up and just to complicate matters even more, you had a son. 
Yeah. And, and I know you and I talked last few weeks about how, how you were managing all that. So I guess talk about that and talk about how, how many hours of sleep you were getting a night, et cetera. Before Bo came, I was trying to do double runs a lot too. So that was, that was what helped me build a lot of volume. Even if my runs were only three miles in the afternoon, I would certainly do that. But once he came, that was no longer a possibility. So I would just try to run as much as I could at one time. My easy runs were at like 10 miles at like eight minute pace. Yeah. When Bo came, obviously the first couple of nights were the biggest change. You know, obviously, you know, you're, you're, you have a newborn that's waking up every couple hours for food and things like that. My wife and I, we, we had a pretty good schedule. So once things mellowed out a little bit, um, I would take like a, the first evening shift and feed Bo. And then, you know, generally I was waking up early morning around four to feed him because uh, he'd wake around around that time. And that worked out pretty well. Um, there was, there was nights I could get maybe close to eight hours, but, uh, I would say most nights around six hours, but it was pretty consistent. I did make the decision to sleep in our guest room for a little bit to sleep through the night, <laughs> which, <laughs> which was uh, helpful. Um, and, but I think it was also helpful for my wife too, because I was fresh and able to get up at 4am to feed him so she could sleep, you know, another couple hours un- un- uninterrupted. Well, that, yeah, that, that's actually a good point. You <laughs> have to work together kind of with your spouse and everybody uh, balances essential. And if you work together, I mean, it's, it sounds like it's possible to kind of balance it in a way that's healthy and probably healthier than the alternative, which is just not doing anything and maybe just focusing 100% 24-7 on the, the responsibilities. Obviously, having a, a child that takes precedent over everything, but balance is essential. And and if you're strategic about it and intelligent about it and you plan well, you you can certainly, certainly run a marathon pretty darn close to your absolute potential. I mean, not to say, I think you have a lot of (laughs) room for improvement for sure. So let's think about your performance and exactly what it means. Maybe compare it to the Olympic trials, qualification standard and, and things like that. How would you rate your performance relative to your preparation and your actual, the training you did leading into it? And then maybe what do you think your absolute, say, genetic potential would be if you trained for a year or two? Looking back at the race, you, you find things almost immediately that you can improve on, uh, even with what I had to, to, to build for this race. So for context too, I got, I got second place and, and that kind of eats at me. I, I lost sleep over the last couple of nights because of it. But I really can't be that disappointed. I knew, and I told everyone this, like everyone that asked, I was like, I think I'm capable of a 228. And, and my goal was to do it as as comfortable as possible. And I think I accomplished that. When when you look at the Olympic trials, the, the most recent Olympic trial standard was 219, which is about a 519 or 518 average mile. That is pretty quick. That's a big difference from a 536 average pace. However, I think if I had the time to dedicate to it, I can reach that. So we will see. They have not released the the trial standards for the the upcoming 2024 Olympics. There's been chatter that it'll be 218, which one more minute is quite a big, that's a lot of difference. You know, when you start cutting down over the course of a marathon, right? you know, if it stays at 219, I think I'm going to have to give marathon a bigger focus. And you know, I think my, my goal will be to train for triathlons in the late winter and in summertime and have fun with the, the local races. And then 
really just run a lot and then cycle for the additional fitness and, and load without pounding my legs and then, you know, complete some fall marathons or early, early winter marathons. So it sounds like not even necessarily triathlon training with a run focus. It's almost like marathon training with some supplemental cycling and with maybe swimming. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I think that's a good, good approach. I mean, I would say obviously you're, you're a great triathlete, but that performance on Saturday was, was pretty darn impressive and probably just genetically, physiologically based on anatomy, all of that. You're a marathoner. You looked smooth out there and talk about the race a little bit. So the guy who, who won, what was his name? Will Cladwell. Will Cladwell. Yeah. So he had a good race, obviously. I think this was probably a PR for him, right? I believe so. Yeah. Cause I, I tried to look up everyone that was in the elite wave prior but there's actually, you know, in the first like six mile, actually first, first half marathon, there's another guy I was running with. So Will came from behind. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the, yeah, the person that was leading. So the first couple miles, I think first mile, two, three, I have to look back for his name, but he pulled away right away, you know, and he took off with like the, uh, the half marathon crew, but then I reeled him in by mile six and I asked him, I said, what are you, what are you trying to shoot for today? And he said, 2.30. And at that point we were wow. averaging like 5.31 pace. And, and I, all I said was, yeah, me too. But I knew we were running way too fast for 2.30 and I knew he was going to blow up. Mm-hmm. And um, I'd have to look back at the time. And I think he did. I think he ran around a, a 2.40 something. So he fell off quite a bit after the half marathon mark. When we started the race there, we started at the same time as the half marathon the elite wave and they took off fast and granted we did start on Broadway going downhill. So mm-hmm. I knew I had a little bit of wiggle room with the pace. So it mellowed out once you started going up to Mumbrian, the uphill. And I was not sure what I was capable of. So my goal going in the race was like, okay, I'm going to settle into 539 as quickly as possible and and see what happens. That did not happen at all. The first six miles, I think I was averaging by six miles, I was averaging like 531. So a little bit faster than I wanted to, but I felt phenomenal. I knew that wouldn't always be the case. So I just kind of rolled with it. Eventually, you know, my overall pace leveled out to a 533 and around mile 12, we went around the sound stadium. And that's when I looked back and I saw Will Cladwell. He was pretty close behind then. By that point, I knew I had to make a, a move. So when we were going over the bridge towards East Nashville, I, I put on a pretty big surge at that point around, it was ba- basically around the halfway mark, around mile 13. I thought I gapped everyone quite a bit, but at mile 15, I turned around and he was right there. And I was like, oh, this mm. is going to be a race. you know. And I knew at that point, I was like, this is going to be a race. And I, I didn't know how good he felt. I knew I was starting to feel the fatigue a little bit. You know, I was like, okay, just get through one mile at a time. That's what went through my head at that point. You know, the first half went, went by pretty quick. There's a lot of energy throughout the city. But once you cross over to East Nashville and you make that turn towards Shelby Bottoms, it gets a little bit more lonely. And there's still people out there, but it's not like it was when you're running through downtown and 12 South and Germantown and things like that. Around mile 16, you know, that's when Will caught me and we were running neck and neck. And then by mile 18, you know, that's when he started to make a move. And well, I say make a move, but that's just when I started to fade a little bit. <laughs> and I did everything in my power to just kind of maintain pace. I took four gels with me and I took one on the course from, from one of the tables. So I knew like 500 calories should be about enough for the race. And looking back, I think I probably could have taken a little bit more, but out in Shelby Bottoms, 
we did a two loop section and that's where it got a little lonely. The mindset started to shift a little bit and I, I did everything I could to focus. And that's where things just got interesting. I started to slow down a little bit. I started hitting like 540 miles and then like towards the end, like a five, 550, which that's where I lost a lot of time. I don't think uh, he really picked up too much the, the last half. I think I just slowed down a little bit at that point. When we came back into East Nashville, we had like one more climb before the turn to the finish. And that's where I just felt the fatigue and I just knew I had to do everything I could to get through. And mentally, you just got to stay focused and focus on the things that are going to keep you upright, which is, you know, your, your form, your cadence and, and, and take control of your breathing too. And looking at your, your splits on Strava, it's not like you slow down that much. You did not have a single mile above six minute pace. And Mile 20, 539, mile 21, 540, and then 541, 542, 545, 545, 552. I mean, compared to the prior miles, we're talking, you know, maybe 10 second difference, but it sounds like he slowed down slightly less. I don't know if he accelerated or not, but you did not bonk. It, it does not seem like you, you blew up at all. It was more of that gradual kind of just neuromuscular sort of influence. Yep. Absolutely. Like I, I was not, I mean, I was uncomfortable, but I wasn't like aching per se. It was just, um, I was just slowing down and I was just doing everything in my, in my power to, to maintain the pace or maintain what I could. It seems like the pacing was stellar. The beginning miles were faster than your overall average. So you didn't negative split, you definitely positive split. And when one considers that the first 10 K is basically just a gradual ascent, you were definitely running faster at the mm -hmm. beginning and, and putting out a higher effort, but it's not like your, your heart rate was skyrocketing. I think you were running at you know a fairly appropriate pace for that. And it seemed like you executed well. So your heart rate, it was pretty darn even throughout the whole race, right? So what, what were those numbers? Yeah. Yeah. So I guess the first half we'll look at, you know, that was an average heart rate of 151. And then the second half was 155. Um, one thing I'll say too, so the early stages of the race, I did go out a little fast, partly because, you know, we were right behind the half marathon and I didn't know who was in the crowd, but some of the lead cyclists that were pairing up with the lead runners, they said like I was number three at the time. So in my head, I thought there was someone in the lead pack with the half marathon crew. And at that point I was like, well, I'm going to roll the dice today and try to go with that guy and catch up at some point. However, they're incorrect. And I was second at that point. I probably could have gone out a little slower and saved a little bit of time on the back end. But at the end of the day, it was one of those things where I didn't know um, who was up there and I just had right. to roll the dice at that point. Yeah. It's somewhat frustrating when there's a start in, in a race and you don't know who you're actually competing against. It's, it's an unfortunate reality when it comes to rolling starts or enormous races like this. But Honestly, those those lead cyclists, I don't even think that you can fault them because the one guy who the guy who was leading the whole race, right? When you hop on Wedgwood after running down 12 South, so call it seven and a half mile mark, he was wearing a marathon bib. So <laughs> I, I don't know what I thought that he was winning the race and that I don't know exactly what the issue was there. If he just had a wrong bib, if he switched to the half marathon at the last second or, or what the deal was, I don't even know who it was. Yeah. I think I know exactly what you're talking about. That's what, that's what I, I saw. The, I saw the same thing. So that's probably why they thought there was a third person up there or the first person I should say. 
yeah, so that was somewhat confusing, but it's just part of it. And you just have to go as hard as you can when you yeah. don't know <laughs> where your competitors are. First to second half, 531, normalized, great adjusted pace. First half, second half was 539, decently even splits, I would say. Mm-hmm. It was obviously uh, an excellent race. And you mentioned your nutrition plan a little bit. So, so how do you think you're going to approach your next marathon when it comes to just taking in fluid and calories? Great question. So fluid was, the, was a tough one because I wanted to grab the fluid from the volunteers. However, by the time we split off from the half marathon crew, they were not holding out any, any cups. And I think it's, they just didn't know where you're coming at that point. It got a little tricky to grab the fluids and I probably could have slowed down a tiny bit to, to grab the cups. Uh, the one thing I've been thinking about, and I thought about this during the race too, is if it's a warmer race, I don't know how I'm, how I'm going to store that many gels unless they have specific races that are going to have tables with gels on them. Because I, I had two gels in my arm warmers and then two of my, my pockets, my shorts, which the short pockets were pretty difficult to get out. It took me at least a minute to get each one out, which didn't really slow me down, but I did have to focus on that, which was not, it was not good energy used to, to pull out a gel from my shorts. I, I would like to test to see if I can push the limit a little bit more, if I could get in, you know, another 200 calories and not have any GI issues. So that would be the next plan. However, I want to make sure I can store it correctly and that's not going to interfere with, with my stride or anything like that. Well, that's the issue. I mean, a marathon, you're running pretty darn quickly. So if you're slowing down every mile and consuming cup of Gatorade endurance or something, it actually can impact the race a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, in a long course, I always encourage athletes every single mile to slow down and and grab a, a cup of Gatorade. I always say a, a cup of Gatorade endurance in an Ironman race, typically 25 to 30 calories per cup because you know they don't fill it up the whole way. I think they're mm-hmm. eight ounce cups. So for a marathon, efficient delivery is is essential. And at the elite, I mean, you, you are in that elite category, but at the, the marathon majors, for example, New York City, Boston, Olympic trials, they typically have tables set up where the elite athletes can place bottles beforehand. So, you know, every 5k or so athletes will have access to a bottle, which they grab and, and, you know, they, you can down like 12 ounces in one go, potentially mm-hmm. even 16 ounces. I mean, it, it depends on one's ability to drink. It is an interesting addition to, or it's a, it's a puzzle piece and figuring out how to, what to do with it is, is important. So I know they make gels that are kind of a little bit more hefty. Mm-hmm. So two, three, even 400 calories in each pack. So, but you know, but then what do you do with it after you drink or you consume half of it? <laughs> you know, w- what do you do with it? You definitely, do, somebody at your level definitely doesn't want to be carrying around a bottle. Right. Um, it destroys economy and throws off your stride. It's always a tough call, but at the end of the day, you're still exercising for you know two hours, 20 minutes, and you're functioning at a pretty high level. So it's not like you're going to be able to consume a thousand calories anyway. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about just trying to get an additional 200 calories. Would it, would it make a difference? Potentially. I think it's, it's worth trying. I'm generally an advocate of athletes taking it as much as they can once they prove that they can do so in training. Exactly. Because um, if you're feeling queasy, you can always stop <laughs> and skip a, a fueling checkpoint. And that's one thing where I've learned from triathlon, you, you absolutely have to feel, otherwise you're going to bonk. And 
in marathon, even when I was, when I was a peer runner in college, like we never fueled during long runs or, or pretty much ever. Right. I would believe that a lot of runners don't take that approach just because they don't really think a lot through it. But like when you're doing a triathlon, you're already burning so many calories by the time you get to the run. So it's such an important piece to it. And it is in running too. I just, I just don't know if people have ever pushed the limit of how many calories they can take. Yeah. I mean, it's a fairly recent phenomenon where people or elite athletes, they really focus on consuming a decent number of calories and fluids during a marathon. Mm -hmm. I remember back in the seventies and even in the eighties, just nobody would consume anything. It's Rogers would show up and (laughs) run Boston after drinking, you know, a couple cups of coffee and that's it. Uh, I don't know if that, that changed, but I remember reading that 15 years ago somewhere, but definitely as, as sports science advances, we realize that it matters. I think that athletes are way more conscientious now than before. And one good example is how Gabriel Selassie, one of the best runners of all time, he's probably up there with Elio Kipchoge for sure. Hal Gabriel Selassie is up there and he had a very high sweat rate. So he was, I think one of the the first athletes who would drink a lot during a marathon. I think his, his sweat rate was around five pounds an hour and he was only 120 pounds. The good thing is that a marathon for him is only two hours. It's not like he has to figure out how to replace five pounds of fluid loss per hour for six hours or four hours or three hours. It's just two and you can lose a bit and still function just fine. But the marathon distance is is a race where you definitely need to take in some replenishment fluids and and calories. And I would say par is probably 200 calories an hour. I think mm-hmm. most athletes would be able to consume that, but you can take in more and it's it's good to establish what you can take in. Yeah. I'll definitely experiment with it. And uh, once I start to get back into like the long runs again, and especially a long run with like a specific effort, because I'll be curious to see if I can push the throttle a little bit and uh, take in more without any discomfort. So what's next? So obviously first marathon, first open slash standalone marathon in the books. You have run a couple of marathons at the end of Ironman, right? I have. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So the next, next uh, I'm going to run Oak Barrel Half Marathon, which is not a fast race, but it takes place just outside of the Jack Daniels distillery. So it's a really unique race and I've always wanted to do it. And I had the opportunity to do it in next April. So um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. I've been looking at the calendar for marathons, you know, briefly this morning, you know, one, one athlete in our group, you know, got me all excited about doing natural rock and roll again. However, you pointed out that it is the same weekend as our camp next year. So that, <laughs> that is off the docket already. Um, however, I would love to find a race that's up fast. I've been looking at grandma's marathon, even Chicago next, next October. Uh, or even New York City. One goal I think I'd like to do to accomplish it would be hit, to hit all the majors. That would be a pretty pretty exciting thing to do. But I'm in this I'm in this state of mind right now where I have this internal conflict where it, I, I'm, I'm also signed up for a bunch of triathlons next year and a bunch of long course triathlons. So I think what I'm going to try to do is hit Chattanooga 70.3 in May, and then uh, slowly start to shift my focus to more of a run focus and uh, find a, another fall marathon. Sounds like a good approach, especially with, uh, with Bo taking up a lot more of your time. Obviously, training for a marathon is, takes less time to sort of reach your potential there than it does to train for a 70.3 or Ironman. 
yeah. and reach your potential. So way more convenient. It's not like it has to be one or the other year round. It's pretty easy to stay in touch with fitness within any given discipline. It's, it takes some work to build fitness, but maintaining it is pretty easy with just a couple sessions each week. I imagine you'll still be able to throw down some really fast times and 70.3s, the local races and all that. Yeah. Yeah. The, the swim will be the most challenging to get in, which I actually swam yesterday for the first time in a long time. I saw that. It was 115 <laughs> pace per, uh, per hundred. I just yeah. looked it up because I was looking at your marathon splits and I was like, what? I, I thought he hasn't been swimming. That Vasa yeah. must be working well. Yeah. So, so the Vasa works. Um, however, I, I will say I was taking a lot of recovery. Um, I was swimming with an athlete that I had doing a lot of kicking drills, but I did want to get in the pool and just feel it out a little bit. But yeah, I'll be using the Vasa a lot to, for my swim fitness, but mm -hmm. also just to maintain some muscular strength on my upper body. Yeah, cycling will be easy to get in. I'll be on the trainer a lot. And then uh, running is always easy. You can just step out the front door and run at any time. For sure. All about efficiency and, and balancing it all. And we had some other athletes this past weekend who did some pretty amazing things on very few hours of training, which mm -hmm. I think we'll, we'll have to discuss on upcoming podcasts. I mean, one athlete completed an Ironman on very, very low volume. And we did it deliberately and we were very careful with it. He did very well. We also had another athlete qualify for Kona, more traditional training there, but still exciting, another good performance. And then obviously other working triathletes this past weekend had great performances at races all over, like, like you mentioned. You know, I think that it will be good to on upcoming podcasts to sort of feature athletes who have high stress schedules, athletes who travel a lot, athletes who have a lot of responsibility, you know, high stress, high power jobs, but still get in the training to you know, accomplish great feats in triathlon and be competitive on a national level, you know, potentially international level. If you look at it on, at an, on an age group basis, it's, it's sort of fun trying to balance it all. And obviously, one of the things we specialize a working triathlete is how to optimize training so that you can maximize performance, but still do everything else and, and perform as parents, students in your career, all of that. Yeah. All good points. I'll, I'll say one last thing, like even going into the marathon, I knew it was going to be a challenge with, with a little one on the way. And once he arrived, I was concerned if I was, if I was able to get in, but you have to be intentional and you have to just have a plan obviously with the newborn, their plans kind of go out the window pretty quick anyway. But if you're goal oriented, you're going to find a way. Absolutely. Where there's a will, there's a way. And you don't have to sacrifice other areas. I mean, you do have to decide what's important. You can't do everything, but you know, ideas, you can do anything uh, as long as you can, you focus on it. But it's, it's all about, you know, balance is one thing, but it's about, I think, strategically timing periods in training where actually maybe you're not balanced, <laughs> but it's <laughs> overall balancing, you know, your life say over a year's time. But if you're training for an Ironman, for example, and you want to do well and you have big goals there, there's a time to be dialed in and, and focused. You might have to, you know, make sacrifices, but I think that we're all about figuring out how to, uh, do it all and be a, a great human. <laughs> Big time. Congratulations on your performance this past weekend and stoked to see future marathon performances. I appreciate it.
Well, thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you want to reach us, you can reach me at Derek at WorkingTriathlete.com. And you can reach me at Conrad at WorkingTriathlete.com. Thanks again. See ya.